Well, if you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and please turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Our text today will be from verses 35 through 44. So you can go ahead and hold your place there. But before we get into our text this morning, I think it's important to remind ourselves of what all has been going on up to this section that we are going to be looking at today. For the past four weeks, we've been looking at one day in the Passion Week of Jesus. And if you remember, this day actually began in chapter 11, the morning after Jesus had just cleansed the temple by driving out the money changers and those selling animals for sacrifice. And do you recall why he did that? Because upon arriving at the very place where the Lord of the temple himself was to be worshipped and honored, Jesus sees the religious leaders were using the great Passover pilgrimage to completely rip off and take financial advantage of the thousands of Gentile outsiders who traveled far and long to worship and to offer sacrifices to God. And here Jesus rebukes the money changers and the religious leaders, the experts and teachers of the law, by reminding them of what God had said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 56 verses 6 through 7. Where God said, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And of course, you will remember the reaction from the religious elite. They heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And so after this, Jesus leaves the temple in the evening with his disciples. And the next morning, they pass by the fig tree that he had cursed previously on their way into the temple the day before. And why did Jesus curse the fig tree? Because on the outside, from a distance, its leaves made a tree, the tree look like it should have fruit. But upon close inspection, there was no fruit in it to be found. And as we saw together, this was a direct indictment against the nation of Israel and the religious leaders because of their lack of spiritual fruit that Christ himself should have seen demonstrated in the very temple of God, where true, humble, reverent worship of God was to be happening You see, on the outside, they were doing everything correctly. It was right for sacrifices and offerings to be made in the temple. But was the heart of Israel truly in their worship? Or had their self-righteousness and pride blinded them to remembering the meaning and symbols behind their sacrifices? Israel had grown numb to the holiness of God and their true heart condition and their seriousness of their sin. Their obedience to God's law had turned into a heartless religiosity that's roots grew deeper than they dared to realize. And so the next morning is where we have been studying together for the past four weeks. We've seen over and over the failed attempts of the religious leaders to trap Jesus, ultimately so that they can have him killed and done away with. Last week, we looked at the scribe's question to Jesus on what he thought was the greatest commandment. And like all of the questions Jesus had been asked so far, he wisely answers them in such a way that it says in Mark 12, 34, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And so where our text picks up today is the very last encounter 
that Jesus will have in the temple area with the religious elite. And this time, instead of the religious leaders interrogating Jesus, he will now turn and ask the crowds a question. And so let's look at our text this morning, starting in verse 35 of Mark chapter 12. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, And like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Well, the title of my message today is Jesus' Great Warning. And so as we look at this text together, it's my prayer that we will heed this warning, myself included, and that God will have grace on us to help us to remember the significance and the importance of this warning together. And so would you please pray with me now? Father, we are so thankful for your word because we are so quick to deceive ourselves, to think better of ourselves than we really are. And we're so quick to think less of you. And so your word is what shows our true intentions. Your word is what cuts to the heart. It cuts to the soul to uh, show us our true need for Christ. So Lord, as we look at your word today, would you help us to examine ourselves, that we would not deceive ourselves to um, ignoring the, the warning that is in this text, but that we would humbly uh, stop and examine and, and listen to your word. Lord, use me now, and uh, we pray these things in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. Well, if I were to ask you, what was one of the greatest and deadliest sins you will ever have to struggle with and overcome as a Christian, what might your answer be? Is it not true that at the root of almost all underlying sins lies an all too easily welcomed and willfully fed, hidden, and if left uncared for and unrepented of, then an eternally damning sin that lies at the core of all of our hearts, myself included? And what is this toxic and deadly sin? Is it not pride, that presumptuous self-exaltation and attitude of superiority? That every single human being, Christian and non-Christian, is constantly tempted to be influenced, overcome, and controlled by. And what is terrifying is that some of you might have said, no, 
I don't struggle with pride or that type of sin issue in my life, which might really be evidence that this sin, in fact, has grown its roots so deeply within your hearts that you've become blinded by its pervasiveness and reality of it. And what's even more disturbing is that this parasite of sin, if left unchecked, can mask itself and take the form of religion in its carrier, deceiving its host to believing that they are right with God when in fact they are in reality far from him. C.S. Lewis in his chapter titled The Great Sin found in his book Mere Christianity said this, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride always means enmity. It's not just enmity between man and man, but enmity between God and man. And I believe he is right. As we look at our text today, I want to show you how pride snowballs into three deadly conditions within the human heart. So beware of pride because it distorts your understanding of Scripture. Beware of pride because it leads to hypocrisy. And beware of pride because it blinds you from seeing your need for God. So first, my first point this morning, beware of pride because it distorts your understanding of Scripture. Let's look back at our text again, starting in verse 35, and we'll continue on through verse 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So what do we have going on here in this section? Jesus teaching the crowds in the temple, ask how can the scribes, the experts of the law, teach that the Messiah was the son of David when David himself calls him Lord? And there are several reasons this is significant. And first, look at who he's indicting in his teaching. It's the scribes. And well, who were the scribes? Understanding who the scribes were will help us see why this is such a shocking accusation made by Jesus. Scribes were considered honored professionals whose modern day equivalent would be judges or lawyers. They were generally the most educated men in the nation and as such became influential. In fact, since writing was practiced only by those with a certain level of intelligence, scribes were often considered wise men. They were transcribers of God's law and readers of the law in the synagogues and became highly regarded interpreters of God's law. And so in other words, these guys were a very big deal. And unfortunately, they knew it. And they were the great respected and honored theologians and pastors and teachers of their day. And Jesus chooses a royal messianic psalm, a psalm dealing with the role of the house of David in the life of God's people, which is very well known and highly regarded and beloved by the scribes and the people. And in a few sentences, Jesus shows that these experts in the law have over and over missed such a clear, blatant truth right there in the text, meaning 
They've been misinterpreting this passage all along. The ones who prided themselves and their knowledge of the scriptures missed such a significant truth about the coming Messiah. And what was that significant truth? That while it was true that the promised Messiah was to come from the house and lineage of David, he was not just the son of David or a mere king, but he was also God's son and therefore was David's Lord, the king of kings, who has a place of authority at the right hand of the throne of God. The Messiah wasn't just another man. He was to be the son of David and the son of God, the God-man who would come not to become a great political figure and to overthrow the enemies of the Jews, but he came first to overthrow the greater enemy of sin and death, to give his life as a ransom for many. And this also meant that if Jesus' teaching of this passage was correct, which it was, and if he was the Messiah, which he was, then he had not just the authority that came from the throne of David, but he had the greater authority of God as God's beloved son. And Jesus refers to the weight that this text bears by saying, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, meaning that Jesus believed all scripture was God breathed and thus inerrant and authoritative. And so uh, I just want to make a quick side note here before we move on. This high view of Scripture being God-breathed is the orthodox view of Scripture. And more importantly, it is the view that Jesus and the apostles held of Scripture. And it is the view that we hold here at Fair Oaks Church. So if you'd like to go deeper in your understanding of the dual authorship of Scripture and the doctrine of inspiration— I want you guys to take a look at your worship guide. There's a link there uh, where you can find some more information and go deeper in that. And please shoot us any questions you have regarding this at fairoaks.org slash ask because we'd love to answer any questions we can about this topic. So I just had to make that side note. Let's come back into our text, okay? So Jesus, uh, so just like Jesus' rebuke against the Sadducees in verse 24, where he stated, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, Now we see that the same thing was true of the scribes, the so-called experts of the law. Their pride for interpretation and their wrong presuppositions about the Messiah had blinded their ability to understand and comprehend the scriptures. And this had a massive ramifications on the rest of their lives. So church, God's chosen to give us his special revelation through his written word. And if we don't seek to approach his inspired word humbly, we cannot expect to get to know him. We cannot expect to know how to lovingly obey him. And we cannot expect to understand the corrupt condition of our own hearts. So let me ask you, what is your outlook on God's word? Do you see a need for it? Do you find it matters very little in your life? Do you doubt its trustworthiness? Can you live without it? Do you ignore or throw out scriptures you don't like? Do you twist scriptures to make them more relevant with the culture? Depending on how you answer these questions, they might be evidences that you've been blinded by pride and have become self-sufficient, not seeing your need to be guided and led by God and his word. This is a very dangerous place to be. So if this is you, repent while God is revealing this truth to you. 
A humble heart prayerfully and carefully searches, meditates, submits under, and accepts God's word, allowing it to convict and challenge, admonish, encourage, and transform one's heart, perspectives, and understanding of who God is. Isn't that what Hebrews 4.12 tells us? It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And what does it do? Discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The scribes were so confident in their own intelligence and ability to teach the scriptures. They had this head knowledge that they never let it reveal the true thoughts and intentions of their own hearts, which is then allowed their pride to fester up into the deadly disease of hypocrisy. Listen to what Jeremiah 17 says. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And what is the answer? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. So this leads us to our second warning. Beware of pride because it leads to hypocrisy. Look at verse 38 with me as we continue on in our passage. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. And have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So Jesus here warns his listeners. He says, beware, watch out, stay away from the religious scribes. Because they don't practice what they preach. Their lives are one big, fat, hypocritical, religious show. They wear the mask of piety to cover and hide their true mangled, lustful, and sin-filled heart. And what is it that they do? They all focused on the external, having the appearance of being highly spiritual and morally superior. They walk around in long robes. They like greetings in marketplaces. They have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts. You see, it was common for scribes in this day to have a special garb or robe that they loved to wear because it signified their status and value as religious leaders in their society. It was to mark them as holy men, ones who were supremely devoted to God and his word. Here's how Matthew Henry put it. They affect to appear very great, for they go in long clothing with vestures down to their feet, And in those, they walk about the streets as princes or judges or gentlemen of the long robe. Their going in the clothing was not sinful, but their loving to go in it, priding themselves in it, valuing themselves on it, commanding respect by it, saying to the long clothes as Saul to Samuel, honor me now before this people. This was a product of pride. It was also a common practice in that day to make sure that you were the one that greeted the scribe first. This was to show that you honor them as your superior. This is the type of greeting that they loved. They craved others to view them as superior, as more righteous, as religious role models. They also loved to sit at the elevated seats of honor in front of the synagogue, overlooking the congregation in front of the ark that contained the sacred scrolls reminding the people of their superior intellectual knowledge 
and demanding reverence and respect. And if you invite them to a banquet, well, you better make sure you seat them in the best seat and make sure you serve them first and serve them the best wine and the best of food. And what do all these things have in common? Are they not all about the scribes being concerned with their appearance before others? I'm sure we can all think of examples where we have seen such ridiculous religious performances displayed in front of us, right? I remember this one time in high school, I went to a Christian school and we were in the middle of chapel together and it was a time of prayer for freshmen all the way through seniors. And so this freshman kid stood up to pray and he said, and I kid you not, just like this, he stood up and he said, Lord, we know that the flesh is prevalent in this nation. And I lifted my head up because all of a sudden I thought, some kid had just potentially time traveled from the future, from the Middle Ages and landed right here in the middle of this prayer meeting. And, you know, all joking aside, I, I do still remember the exact line that this kid prayed because of how strange it seemed. And I don't know his heart, but it, it sure felt like this kid wanted to impress the older high schoolers around him. In all seriousness, though, aren't we all guilty of doing the same thing? Haven't we tucked our Bibles under our arms and walked around the church with the type of nose-up snobbery as we judged others around us for being less spiritual than us? Haven't we been to prayer meetings before and been so focused on what we were going to say when it came our turn that we, so we could sound more spiritual to the people around us and we paid no attention to the prayers of the other saints around us? Don't we deep down love to be served first? Or feel entitled that this church should serve us because of our long-time commitment and donations we've made over the years here at Fair Oaks. None of us want to admit it. But deep down, we all struggle with this pride and hypocrisy. I'm not immune to it. And neither are you. It's something that I'm very afraid of and I pray that God keeps me from. May God help us not to be like these scribes who were so focused on outward appearance and never spent any time seeking God and asking him to search out their true thoughts and intentions of their hearts. Well, not only did the scribes go about with such great false religious pomp and circumstance, they evidenced their true hypocrisy by going a step further by what Mark graphically describes here as devouring widows' homes and as a show They made long prayers to try and hide their injustice and hypocrisy by making it seem like they had a great love for God and the poor and destitute around them. These scribes used their elegant prayers for appearance's sake to build trust with the people, specifically the widows here, so that after building their trust, they could take advantage of their livelihood, slowly eating away at what little they had. And their religious show helped cover up their hidden injustices. This was done by the the scribes pressuring the widows to give to them financially in order to gain blessing from God. And they also crafted legal contracts coercing the widows to sign them, which would eventually mean the widows would hand over all of their property to the scribes after they died. Here's the most terrifying truth about these hypocrites. These experts of the law knew exactly what God's word had said. They had it memorized. They had taught it to the congregation many times. 
But their pride had manipulated and distorted their understanding of the scriptures. And their hearts refused to submit to God and were hardened to the truth of God's law. Look at how much they loved themselves. Evidenced in the accusations Jesus had just made about them. They did everything outwardly in the name of honoring and loving God. While hypocritically they were only truly living for the love and exaltation of themselves and for momentary material gain at the expense of the poor and destitute. This is truly baffling because all throughout the Old Testament, command after command had been given to make sure that widows were taken care of and justly treated. And the scribes knew this. Over and over, God's indictment against Israel and his wrath against them was in part due to their leader's disobedience and lack of care for the oppressed and the poor like the widows of their society. They had these scriptures memorized. They knew of God's previous judgments over the nation. How could they so blatantly go about abusing these widows without a care in the world? Because they did not love God nor his law nor did they fear him, which in turn resulted in their lack of love for their neighbor. Listen to just a few of these sobering warnings from God that they had memorized yet willingly rejected. Exodus twenty-two, twenty-two. God said to the people of Israel, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. That's serious. Proverbs 15, 25, it says, The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. Deuteronomy 27, 19 said, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. And isn't it truly amazing how hypocritical these teachers and experts of God's law were? Jesus ends his warning to his listeners with the sobering reminder of what is to come for these hypocrites. Look at the end of verse 40 again with me. It says, They will receive the greater condemnation. What a terrifying statement that is. Those that claim to be shepherds and pastors and teachers who hypocritically are really wolves in sheep's clothing, who have preyed upon the weak and the vulnerable, distorted and twisted the scriptures, greater judgment is coming for them. Instead of pointing the people to God, they placed all of the attention on themselves under a pretense of piety. Greater eternal judgment is coming. I'm sure it is no surprise to you how rampant false teachers and false prophets are among the church today. Many who carry the title pastor who claim the name of Jesus are doing exactly what the scribes are doing today. So have discernment, church. Search the scriptures carefully and examine the fruit of your leaders and the message that they proclaim. Are they preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ? Test their character No one, and I mean no one, is immune to pride and hypocrisy. But do not just point the finger at those around you. This is also a sobering reminder for you and I to carefully examine ourselves under the truth-revealing, soul-piercing lens of Scripture, lest we deceive ourselves and our discernment is plucked out by our pride and we too become hypocrites, religious on the outside, 
but with a heart that is completely dead to the things of God. Pray like David did in Psalm 139, where he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Church, what is your life like when you walk outside of this building on Sundays? What do you do in secret when no one is watching? I'm not asking you whether or not you sin. I'm asking about your response and attitudes towards sin. Do you live a life of repentance, recognizing where you fall short, leaning on the everlasting arms of Christ? Or do you willfully live a life of secret, unrepentant sin, masking it all under a fake religiosity? Perhaps for years you fooled everyone around you, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, with a fake faith, a false piety, all while being dead inside to the things of God. Having a form of religion that lacks any true communion with God and genuine love for Him, evidenced by a desire and willingness to obey Him. Isn't that what 1 John 5, 3 tells us? For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Is there a secret, willful refusal to obey God? You know what God has said, but you don't care. You're secretly going to go against Him with delight. Know this, that the God who sees in secret, who sees the heart, is not fooled by your false religion. Pride will scream at you to not listen to me. Pride will scream at you to keep up your front, to keep your mask on. Pride will cause you to fear what others might think if you admit such a truth. But don't fear man. Fear the greater judgment to come. Repent while you still can and turn to Jesus, who alone offers you the full forgiveness of your sins. He has promised to give you a new heart, and there is to be found no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Turn to him now while you still can. As we continue on in our text to our final movement this morning, as Jesus will now finish his indictment against the hypocritical scribes, we will see our third warning against pride. So look at me, uh, look with me, if you will, at the rest of this passage um, from verses 41 through 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. My third and final point for today is beware of pride, because it blinds you from seeing your need for God. Jesus has finished his teaching and warning against the hypocritical scribes. And now we see he transitions to a new section of the temple where he can sit opposite the treasury and observe what was going on there. This section of the temple had 13 trumpet-shaped offering boxes so that worshipers could offer their free will offerings to the Lord and give contributions to the temple and its workers. It was a very busy section of the temple that attracted large amounts of onlookers where many wealthy people would be observed dumping large amounts of coins into these offering boxes. And while many were giving out, a genuine desire, giving out of a genuine desire to worship and obey God, no doubt some desire to make a show out of it that was intended to impress onlookers 
and to pridefully draw attention upon themselves, just like the hypocritical scribes. While Jesus is observing all of this happening, he notices a poor widow who approaches one of the offering boxes. And now imagine with me all of the chaos and the noise and from the massive amounts of coins being dumped into the receptacles as the widow approaches. Her contribution probably was inaudible amongst the bluster. She didn't have a sack of coins to carry up to the front. In fact, many probably didn't even see what small amount she had in her hand. Two small copper coins which make a penny. But Jesus notices her. And he could see straight through to her heart. And while many in the temple probably paid no attention to her, as their eyes were fixed on the wealthy and the grand display of their generosity, which demanded everyone's attention like the robes of the scribes might have. But Jesus notices her. And he calls his disciples over and he says in verse 43, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So how is it that this poor widow, the one seen as least valuable in her society, whose contribution really added up to nothing in comparison to all the other donations, how is it that Jesus can say she gave more than all who were contributing to the offering box? Well, look at what he says again in verse 44. Because they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus here isn't making an indictment against the rich and praising the poor. The widow could have very well been filled with more pride than the rich by praising herself for giving so sacrificially. And so Jesus isn't saying, you need to give until it hurts. What is he saying? The widow's generosity is seen as a direct indictment against the religiosity of the people and the hypocritical, outwardly pious scribes who were so self-absorbed and filled with pride that they could see no need for dependence on God in their lives. The wealthy gave out of their abundance. They knew they had enough squared away to be completely happy and comfortable. Their dependence and security in life was found in their material possessions and in wealth. This widow had nothing to live on. She had no savings, maybe not even a house left to live in. Obviously, she could not depend on the care of the scribes because while they were to be the very ones who were supposed to help care for her, they were actually the ones who were devouring and consuming this widow's possessions. Her willingness to give up the rest of what she had revealed a humility and a total dependence on God that Jesus could see in her worship. She knew that apart from God sustaining her, she could not go on another second. Her gift represented her dependence on the Lord to provide for all of her needs. And Jesus praises her selflessness and humility in her worship, her humble gift as being worth more than all of the other donations combined. And here we have a a clear example of what Jesus had taught his disciples in Mark 10, 31, where he said, but many who are first will be last. But the last will be first. Our pride creates in us a self-sufficiency that blinds us to the reality that apart from God, the sustainer of life, giving us our very next breath, we will die. Pride causes us to find security and assurance in our possessions instead of recognizing and admitting that we are dependent on God's provision and care for us alone. 
Pride also causes us to find our hope in our own performance, giving ourselves a false sense of assurance and self-righteousness. This is exactly the way the hypocritical scribes were so blinded by their own pride. They weren't dependent on God, but on themselves. Their pride themselves, and they prided themselves in how outwardly they kept the law, even adding to the law to show their superiority and self-righteousness, all the while being blinded to the truth that the law was meant to condemn them. That if they were truly serious about following God's law to please him, they would have quickly recognized how greatly they fall short. They would have then recognized how dependent on God's mercy they were for their lives and how much they needed forgiveness of sins. But their pride had kept them from seeing it, which ultimately would lead to their own condemnation. Church, we're all prone to forgetting how dependent we really are on God. Not just for life itself, but for salvation in his righteousness. We take for granted all that God has given us, our spiritual lives included, which causes us to form a false sense of security based on our own strength and increases our pride in ourselves and in our own performance. Like the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3, we often say, I am rich and I have prospered and need nothing. And what is their true condition? It says, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. This is a gracious uh, warning to this church, right? God is, God is telling them, find your righteousness in me alone. Find your wealth in knowing me. So what is the solution to killing this sin that so easily wells up within each of us? How do we keep pride from swelling up in us and distorting our vision? The solution is simple, though we often are prone to forget it or to practice it, right? Take your eyes off yourselves. Fix your eyes on Christ and the life that he lived to humble us and remind us of the realities of the truth of our true spiritual condition. That apart from him sustaining us and saving us, we were totally helpless, bound for future judgment of hell that is to come. So fix your eyes on the selflessness and humility demonstrated by Jesus, the only one who is worthy to walk around in elegant robes, the only one who is worthy of being seated at the highest seat in the synagogue, the only one who is truly to be honored at the royal banquets, the only one whose long prayers were worthy to be listened to, came into this world not to be served, but to what, church? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His perfect sacrifice His giving up his sinless life on the cross was an eternal and permanent payment to God for sin, freely offered to all who would humble themselves, recognize their need for Christ and his righteousness alone to save them, who would repent of their self-righteousness and their hypocrisy, their sin, and place their full dependency and trust in his righteousness and in him alone. There has been and or will there ever be a greater demonstration of sacrificial giving and humility than that of the life and death of Jesus. 
As we take our eyes off ourselves, may we be able to sing this line from this hymn, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Look to Christ, church. May his humility and selfless sacrifice on the cross kill any self-exaltation and pride that might hide within us. May we, in response, exalt the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, the only one who is worthy of our worship. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again. Thank you again for your word. As we look to it, it, it helps Reveal to us our true thoughts and intentions. And Lord, you know that I am prone to to pride and am prone to falling into this very same religiosity that you hate. So God, may, may you give us humility. May you help us to take our eyes off of ourselves. We love to look at ourselves. We love to exalt ourselves. But can we, can we look at Christ? Will you help us to see Christ? See the humility of Christ and may that kill any pride within us in hypocrisy. There's no reason for us to put up a front when we know that you see our heart, see our true intentions. And so if we cannot hide from you, God, why do we pretend like we need to hide from others around us? Help us to be humble. Help us to uh, admit our need for you. Lord, work in us now through your Holy Spirit. May your word not go out in vain, but may it convict, may it encourage, and may it make this church uh, more genuine in our worship for you. You are worthy, Jesus, of our worship. And as we go to sing together, may we genuinely sing from our hearts, not to impress others around us, but to exalt you, Jesus, because you are worthy. We love you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.